0: We are in the second week of a series that we began last week uh, on the book of First John. The last week we covered the first four verses of this first chapter, and so we're going to press on as we just uh, study this, as Pastor Nathan said, one of the most beloved New Testament letters. But I think also, as with the rest of John's writings, just a very passionate, also a compassionate piece of writing. Um, I've entitled this series, Life Made Manifest, primarily because of what John was talking about in the first four verses. Uh, As he essentially begins this letter much in the same way that he begins his gospel, talking about uh, that which was from the beginning, as he says in verse 1. Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the father and was made manifest to us and that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us this is such a deep piece of writing from john and he declares here that the life of of heaven, eternal life itself was made manifest. It appeared for them and for the whole world. That's the gist of John's message. But even here, as we noted last week, all the different ways in which John influent, uh, uh, sort of incorporates "we." If you notice here in these in these four verses alone, he mentions a plural pronoun, if you will, "we" or "are," some thirteen times. Getting the point across, this isn't just John's made up theory. This is coming down from all the apostles. It's their doctrine. It's what they believed. It's what the church was founded on. And everything that they preached and proclaimed centered around this belief. As we asserted last time, that the, the assertion that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, is a life alteringly, uh, is a life altering assertion. It changes everything. And it's an urgent assertion. I think, as we noted last week, all of the the, the, the influx of false teaching by this heretic Sorinthus was was inspiring John to get this letter out and he's writing urgently for the sake of these uh, members of this church. Because I think, as we will see throughout the rest of this letter, his premise is, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, everything else has to change. Everything else will follow suit. And I think... Uh, that's the gist of the Great Commission. You're preaching and teaching in Jesus' name because everything else follows suit. You, you, If you believe that he's the Christ, if you believe that he is God in the flesh. And I think what I've been most, I think, impressed with recently is just the sense in which this message is just as urgent today as it was in John's day. It, So this year, 2022, the ministry Uh they're based out of central Florida. And every year they do sort of a survey, or excuse me, every two years they do a survey in partnership with LifeWay Research. And basically what they do is they give an array of survey questions and statements and have various people from all sorts of demographics and and beliefs and church backgrounds and non-church backgrounds respond to these statements in which they can sort of give a state of theology of America, if you will. I've always found these fascinating. But especially this year. Because their whole premise is this is coming straight from the website. You can go to, I think it's stateoftheology.com or something. But if you're interested in just poking around the data. But they say their, their whole premise is that they want to gauge the theological temperature of the United States. To help Christians better understand today's culture and to equip the church with better insights for discipleship. And actually, if you scour some of these findings, it is both alarming, but also it reminds you of how urgent it is that we need to preach this message. It's it's all of that. And needless to say, I was scouring this survey results and all of the data that they had taken and if as they say that they're trying to gauge a theological temperature this is a corny joke i know but um if if that's what they're doing the us is on uh, is dangerously close to hypothermia <laughs> if you read all of these results case in point i i put this up there so you can read it. so this is statement number 7 that they have people respond to that jesus was a great teacher but he was not god which as you might know, it's, it's essentially what we're talking about here in First John. What John talks about in the Gospel of John. And immediately probably we're like, of course, that's completely false. We would 100%, hopefully, uh, we would 100% be in the, we do not agree with this statement. Sadly, 43% of evangelicals agreed with this statement. Evangelicals is a really broad term, I know. It's not like... But it is a broad term to say most of the people we would likely fraternize with, fellowship with, agreed with the statement that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Which is just to say, at least in my mind, that that old lie of Serentis, all the way back into the first century, John was writing around the 90s A.D., And this is 2022, 2,000 years later, that old lie is still rearing its ugly head. Still dominating certain circles of belief and faith and practice, which likewise means the same urgency that John had as he's writing here to these congregations concerning the word of life, which was made manifest for us. That same urgent need is our need right now. In 2022. Because almost half of the church. Evangelical church. Agrees with the idea. That Jesus he wasn't really God. He was just a really good teacher. I think our overriding conviction. And joy. Ought to be just like John's about preaching the grace of this God of this of the glory as he says here this sort of euphemism for Jesus this one who was from the beginning who came down to where we are he was that word as he says in his gospel that word that became flesh Christ alone who is God in the flesh this is John's resolve notice as he says in verse 5 this This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. You can sense John's conviction. And I think that same conviction ought to be our conviction. That right now, what the... Our world most desperately needs is the the, the affirmative fact, the declaration of the truth that Jesus is God. He was God. He is God. He is God in the flesh. And he has come down to this place for us. And he still rules and reigns on our behalf. This was John's motivation to declare this message. There's a message that he was given by God Himself, and which is just to say again that He and the Apostles didn't make this up, they didn't fabricate it. This was a message given to them. Given to them. And as we've said before and said elsewhere, those these apostles, you can get the sense that they were frustrated with people who didn't believe them. Because in their minds, what they what they were doing, they were just acting like journalists. Good journalists. Because they were just reporting what they had seen, what they had witnessed. They weren't making this up. You have to believe me. I saw this. I touched him. I was with him. I could smell this guy, Jesus. And he was God. I saw this and I saw that. He's acting like a journalist. I just, I'm just reporting to you what I've seen with my very eyes. You can sense John almost frustrated with these churches. My own eyes, my own hands touched this one who is eternal life, who has skin and bone. <laughs> You could sense John trying to just get his people to believe them and not make room for lies like this. That Jesus was not God. He was just a good teacher. I think that's what we ought to be too. Uh, We in the church in 2022, we're like journalists. We report and declare what we have seen and heard out of the word of God. This word of life that we have in front of us. If you want a more graphic illustration, here's my more graphic illustration for what we're supposed to be like in the church. And you're going to probably know exactly where I'm going with this. And you're probably going to wince or something because it's not a very pretty image. But I think it's accurate. Just like a mother bird who feeds her young by regurgitating the food she eats. That's what we are. We're regurgitating the grace of the word of life that we consume. And that's how we feed others. Not some harebrained crazy idea. We are feeding off of the word and then giving that same word to others. Like a mother bird regurgitating her food. And that's like the apostles. As they say here, notice he says, this is the message we have heard from him. The message we are proclaiming to you is the one that we've heard from him. Meaning, we're not the originators of this. We're the authors of nothing. And likewise, we who are in the church, we are merely the beneficiaries of this same message that's been handed down to us by none other than the author and finisher of our faith himself, as it says in Hebrews. And just like the apostles, we receive this word of life from the one who is life. That's our message. The message that this life was made manifest. And this is an urgent message for our day. But more to the point of our text here, as we see just how important this little letter is, even still our own day, case in point right there. The message that John proceeds to write here in this little letter, one of the core and I think very fundamental aspects of it, as he says, this is the message we have for you, is the announcement of God's nearness. As he says there in verse 3, notice... That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. Notice and he says, indeed, our fellowship is with the Father. And then even further, notice in verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in light, we have fellowship with one another. Four times in these little verses, that word appears, fellowship. Which literally just means close association between persons, which is a great image. Indeed, we can say that the message of the gospel is just that. It's a message of... The good news that we preach, that we proclaim, that we hold dear is rooted in this announcement, this declaration that God, the creator, the one who spoke and everything came to be is so desirous of fellowship with you and with I that he came down as a creature in order to renew and redeem that fellowship. Wow. The fellowship that he had with Adam and Eve in the garden, that's what he desires to recapture. And such is why he comes down as one who has flesh and bone. And he comes down in order to make that fellowship possible once again. What an image. What an announcement. And that's where we get to the Gospel of John. If You you can go there or just write it down. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, we have that great... Verse chapter, chapter 1 verse 14. Where he says. And the word John says. Became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. That word dwelt is awesome. Because I think dwelt is not even that great of a word. I think the, the Greek is a lot better. It actually just means dwelt tabernacled the word became flesh and tabernacled among us which automatically ought to make our minds just just go wow pop all the way back to when the, the, the Israelites were wandering through the wilderness and they were setting up and tearing down the tabernacle as the very visible physical manifestation of the glory of God in the midst of their camp and Jesus says I am that in bodily form I am the tabernacled glory of God with skin and bone. What a message. No no pillar of fire, no pillar of smoke. This is glory with a face. As he says here, we've seen his glory because we've looked him in the eyes. This was the manifestation of Yahweh's presence with them. It is Christ alone as God here in Christ and His mission to reclaim this world of sin back into its glory days, back of like when it was in Eden. He literally sets up camp in this world of sinners in order to save them from sin. All of which to say as here and especially as we note in 1 John and those verses that the the, the repetition of the word fellowship, ours is a relational God. I like how one writer says, he says, God cannot get close enough to his people. Because that's how desirous he is of fellowship, of relationship with you and I. And isn't that a marvel? <laughs> and that's what Jesus is. He's the realization of that intent That intent of the Godhead, of the triune God to come near to us and that we might be drawn near to him. That's what it means to have fellowship. He wants that again. He's desirous of that again. And so all of that leads me to this. What does it look like to have fellowship with the father? As he says here, that's his purpose in writing. My purpose in writing is so that we can proclaim the message that we've been given. Why? So that you too may have fellowship with us. What does that mean? What does it mean to have fellowship with the Father? And what does it mean uh, that God is coming close? And to whom does God come close? Well, this is what I want to unpack tonight. This little statement right here. Because I think this is what we see here in these five, these six verses. That God comes close to every sinner who is honest with themselves about their need for cleansing by the blood of his son. Which frees them to walk in the light of his spirit. That's essentially what I want to unpack. Because I think that's what John is talking about here. That God has fellowship with these types of sinners. And notice that. He, he's speaking to sinners. But sinners who are, number one, honest with themselves. Honest sinners. Which might seem like an oxymoron. It might seem like, how can sinners be honest? But notice as he talks here, there's this phrase that he repeats, again, three times. Again, this is a not so secret secret, but if you want to be able to study the Bible, look at things that are repeated over and over again. Because notice in verse 6, he says, if we say, and look at verse 8, if we say, verse 10, if we say, he's imagining these little hypotheticals, these sort of instances and he's raising these questions in order to bring a greater sense of clarity, I think, to whom God really fellowships with. By drawing out these hypothetical sort of questions, these, these statements that, that some people might say. And notice verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Notice verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Both sort of say the same thing, but I think verse 10 sort of emphasizes it even further. Because you're not just duping yourself, you're actually actively calling God a liar. If you claim that, no, I, I, I don't have sin, I don't have anything to repent of. Which again, both of these little hypothetical scenarios that John is coming up with. Imagine someone saying, he's basically saying. They really do underscore the importance of being honest with ourselves. Again, what is the bulk of scripture meant to do? It's meant to show us over and over again just how sinful our hearts can be. The depth of sin that's within us is more than we can fathom. And that ought to scare us. (laughs) Why do we have all of those really dark passages in the Old Testament? It's because God wants us to see what the human heart is capable of. The despicableness that's within the hearts of sin that you and I are all born with because of Adam. He wants us to see that there's no getting around the fact that you and I, we are sinners to the core of who we are. Because we came into this world as sinners. That's what the bulk of scripture reveals, but as we saw this morning, the bulk of scripture also reveals that those same sinners have a hope. And again, I'm getting ahead of myself, I always do that. People who reject this idea, though, that they are sinners, if someone really honestly says, I have no sin, as John here says, you don't have the truth. You don't have reality. You're living in a dream world. And they, if, if they claim that they're not inherently sinful, they are deceiving themselves. And as he says there, they are making God a liar. Because again, all available data points point to this fact that we are sinners, utterly incapable of saving ourselves. You know, I, I should have put it up here, but I didn't. But in that same report, that same 2022 State of Theology survey... Statement number 15 says this, everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God, which is opposite of what John here is talking about. But everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. Guess how many evangelicals agreed with that statement? 61%. 61%. That we are born innocent. A denial of original sin. Scary I think. But alarming. But also I think reminds us of how pressingly urgent it is. That we declare the truth. Yes you are a sinner by birth. Because you are born of Adam. We are all sons and daughters of Adam. And I think the good news is. is that God's fellowship with us. Is predicated on the fundamental premise. That you and I are sinners. Notice he says. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. We are, if we say we are not sinners, we are literally denying the only way in which God comes close. Because he comes close to sinners who say, God, be merciful to me, the chief of sinners. And we think it's opposite. Man's natural inclination is to think that God only comes to the clean people, to the pure people, to the people who have all their ducks in a row, everything ordered. And God is here saying, actually, if you think that, you are actually stiff-arming the way in which I want to come close to you. Because I want to come and seek and save the lost, as Jesus himself says. Those who say they have no sin, as John here says, they are resisting the, 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 the entire way. They're shutting themselves out of God's closeness, of God's fellowship. Because he wants sinners to be drawn to the fact that they are honest with themselves, that they even need a God. Sinners who don't think they're sinners have no need for a God who comes to save sinners. <laughs> And in fact, that's why he's given us his word. He's given us his word so that we might realize who we are. And that he alone is the savior we so desperately need. Because guess what? That's when his gospel comes. God comes close to every sinner who is honest with themselves about their need for cleansing by the blood of his son. Which brings us to number two. He comes close to honest sinners and he comes close to cleansed sinners. Because he's not left us alone in this sad state of affairs. It would be really sad if Jesus had never come. If Jesus wasn't part of the plan. Imagine your Bible without Jesus. That's kind of a weird thing to imagine. But imagine if there was no Jesus. It would really just be a really sad historical book. Of lots of strife, lots of affairs, lots of murder, lots of chaos. The point is, if you would read that same book without Christ, you could still come to realization things are messed up. But it wouldn't be very helpful because it would just leave you there. It would leave you in that state of just, I'm a wretched man. Who can deliver me from this body of death? And without Christ, we would have to say, no one. And that's the point of the law. The point of the law is to drive us to that point. And that's why it's great that there's two words that make up God's whole declaration of hope. It's law, then there's gospel. Because the gospel comes in and tells us how we are delivered from that state of wretchedness. Because to sinners who are honest about themselves and their sin, God brings this message. Notice verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Verse 9 if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Cleanse, purify, pardon. Totally remove the sins off of us, away from us, as it says in the Psalms, as far as the East is from the West. You see, this is the great fact of the gospel. It is a quote unquote, I think Spurgeon said this. That God's gospel is a quote sinner's gospel. It was intended to be preached to sinners. And if you can't confess and admit the fact that you're a sinner. You have really no bearing listening to this gospel. That's a hard truth. But that's the point of it. It's to, The point is to tell honest sinners how they can be cleansed. How they can be renewed. How they can be saved. How they can be made righteous. And that brings us to say that. Part of what it means to have fellowship, to have closeness with God is both recognizing you're a sinner and then rejoicing in the means by which you've been saved. Again, verse 7, through his blood. Now for some, and even some in the modern era, some to grapple with. The idea that the Christian faith talks so much about blood. It's off-putting. Maybe you're disgusted. In fact, there's... Some modern theologians that try to get around that, they deny the need for atonement and all those sorts of things. The idea that there's no, there's no need for penal substitutionary atonement, that God wouldn't really do that, that all that kind of stuff. But if you read the Bible, as we, as we, even as we saw this morning, that atonement and blood are so central to our faith, searching all the way back into Exodus, there's, there's no getting around. The necessity of blood and blood covering sin as a token of God's wrath passing over us. One writer put it this way, Christian religion is covered in blood. Wherever you look, you're bound to see red. One writer put it this way, Christianity is about blood. It's a bloodstained narrative about a bloodstained universe. That's why we sing that song. Nothing but the blood. It's not meant to remind us of violence. It's meant to remind us of the ways in which we are cleansed. Because our faith is a blood-soaked faith. And we can rejoice in that. Because again, stretching all the way back to the days of that same tabernacle that that John is sometimes hinting at. The people of God were indoctrinated with this understanding that their, their hope... Their peace, their way of of feeling atoned for all of their sins, for all of the ways in which they've grieved their God, comes by means of a blood sacrifice on an altar. And the good news is, is that the blood of Jesus is more powerful than that. And that the blood of Jesus brings sinners far and wide, and it brings them into fellowship, as it says here. We have fellowship one with another. How? Because of the blood of Jesus. His son which cleanses us from all sin. Wonderful words. Because again it means that there's no sin. Which Jesus' blood is not sufficient enough to cover. It covers all of it. All sins. And why is that? Well. Well. Again, you can notice the, 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 the reasoning of John. The reason why this blood of Jesus is so powerful to cover sins of any type of imagination or scope. Is because this blood is not just ordinary blood. It's blood that it comes from one who is perfect. One who is divine. Which goes back to John's premise. Who is Jesus? He is God in the flesh. <laughs> he is God and man at the same time. Because he is man, he has veins filled with blood that course through his system, that pump his heart, that that do all of those things that your body does. But because he is God, that blood is perfect. So when it falls to the ground, it falls perfectly for you. Making that sacrifice on the cross infinitely perfect. Infinitely powerful enough to save even the most wretched of sinners and again, why can we be bold in confessing our sin and being confident that, that He will forgive us? Because of this blood of Christ. That's what makes us honest sinners. We can freely admit our sins to God because we have the assurance of His forgiveness. Because of the son who took our place, dying and shedding his blood to cancel and remove every single sin. So, again, coming back to lastly, to the last point I'll hasten through. God comes close to every sinner who is honest with themselves about their need for cleansing by the blood of his son, which frees them to walk in the light of his spirit. Which brings us to lastly, lightened sinners. Notice verse 5. John says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. John here has a couple of these declarations. God is light, God is love and so on and so forth. He explains further. That in him is no d- In him is no darkness at all, not which just means to sort of say that there's not even the, the smallest smidgen of a shadow in this God, this God that we call Jehovah, Yahweh, this triune God, this God who is made up of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's a God of blazing righteousness and radiating glory. And John here is saying that there's no ounce of blight or blemish at all in him. He has everything pure and holy and just and true. And he has all of those things into an infinite degree. Which again, I know, that's kind of hard things to sort of fathom. How can you fathom infinite purity? I don't know, but God is. He is that. He is infinitely holy, infinitely just, infinitely true, and he is all of those things. He is infinite light. And because that is true, John is saying, notice verse 6. If that is true, it is entirely preposterous that you would ever claim to walk in the light while also pertaining to have fellowship with darkness. Notice. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. It is entirely impossible to make two things coincide. One will always overcome the darkness or overcome the other, light or darkness. It's interesting. Paul says the same thing in 2 Corinthians. Go with me there. Notice what he says. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 14 Paul says something very similar to what John says there in 1 John 1 Paul says 2 Corinthians 6 verse 14 do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness what fellowship has light with darkness you can sense it's it's illogical Paul is saying. And John would likewise agree. It's illogical. How can light have anything to do with the dark? Which brings us to the fact. That ours, our world, our present day. Is a battlefield between two kingdoms. A kingdom of darkness and a kingdom of light. And one you will always belong to. You will belong to one or the other. And in fact, as going back to point one, you, if, you are, if you say you're an honest sinner, you have to say you were born into this world, into the kingdom of darkness. That's how you came into this life. You were part of that regime. Even if you weren't aware of it then. And that's again where we come to the beauty and the glory of the gospel. Notice Colossians chapter 1. There's two kingdoms, a kingdom of light, a kingdom of darkness. And what does the gospel tell us? Colossians 1 verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain, from the kingdom of darkness. And transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The gospel tells us all about how there's this sort of kingdom transferal. How we go from one kingdom to the other. How we are brought out of darkness and brought into the light. And as Paul, or excuse me, as John says, we are brought into that kingdom of light to walk in the light, in the light of who God is. And that's what he's going to explain for the rest of the, for much of the rest of this little book. What it means to walk in light. But here you have this wonderful glimpse of who God comes close to. Who God has fellowship with. Honest sinners. Cleansed sinners. Lightened sinners. Sinners who've been brought out of darkness and brought and transferred into the glorious light of God's domain. But I think the wonderful point is, he comes close to sinners. Because again, sinners are all that there are. And that's who he comes close to. And his urgent message to these congregants here in 1 John 1 don't shun, don't stiff arm God's message of fellowship and nearness. Repent, fall to your knees, be honest with yourself, because there is a God who wants to be so close to you, a God who has come so close. He is the life made manifest for every dying sinner. Let us bow our heads and close in a word of prayer.